Today's reading is Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon, soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of the many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be together, altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the Lord, of the righteous, is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Every time, uh, well, most Sundays when we're worshiping and the, the psalm comes up that Matt picks for us 
to read together. I read it. I'm like, that's the next psalm I'm preaching on. And then the next Sunday, we read another one. I'm like, nope, that's that's the next one. And every Sunday, well, most Sundays, it's, the psalms are packed with so many good truths and promises. And so we're on Psalm 37 uh, this morning. This is the longest psalm that I've preached on. And about three quarters of the way through preparing for the sermon, I realized this should probably be two sermons. Well, you're going to get two sermons packed into one. We're going to be skimming the treetops this morning. I wish we could dive deeper into some of these verses and some of these promises, Uh, but we're going to be moving at a pretty fast pace. And so my prayer has been, and my my hope has been that as we're skimming the treetops here and going through these verses, that, that one or two of these verses are going to grab your heart and you'll take it this week in your own study and in your own prayer and dive deeper into it, diving down into the roots of it. So let's come before God in prayer before we get into Psalm 37. Father God, every time I step up into this pulpit to preach, I am very keenly aware of my need uh, for your help and your strength. I am lowly and in need of you and left to my own strength and my own words, I am absolutely nothing. So thank you that you have promised that in our weakness, you show yourself strong. In our neediness, you show your abundant help. So please help me this morning. Please help the people here this morning to hear your truth. And my deepest longing is that we would set our hearts on your law, on your instructions. We would seek to delight ourselves in you. And through that seeking and through that setting, you would give us the desires of our heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So God has given us Psalm 37 to answer the question, specifically to answer the question, what are the righteous to think, what are they to feel, and what are they to do when confronted with evildoers and wicked deeds? So Psalm 36 exists to help us answer this question, what are the righteous to think and feel and do when they are confronted with evil and wicked people? So that's what the aim of this whole sermon is meant to try to answer, is that question. What are we to make of unpunished, unchecked acts of evil and those that do them? What are we to think about this? What are we to feel about this? And what are we to do about this? What does this psalm teach us about about God, about who he is and what he does and what he's concerned about? And what does this teach us about people and in our own heart? The point of this psalm, Psalm 37, and the other 149 psalms in this book, in the book of Psalms, is to help you have proper God-exalting feelings that have their roots in powerful God-revealed truths for walking in the path of God-glorifying obedience. That's been the theme of what I've preached on and in all of the Psalms that I've, that I've had the opportunity to preach on is that the point of the Psalms, it's there in the Bible to help you have proper God-exalting feelings that have their roots in powerful God-revealed truths for walking in the path of God-glorifying obedience. So this the psalm commands us to not only do certain things when we're confronted with evil, we are commanded to feel certain ways, and then also commanded to not feel certain ways. We're commanded to have emotions. Right feelings aren't optional if you're serious about wanting to obey God. If you haven't thought much about that reality, it ought to leave you scratching your head because it has 
left me scratching my head. How do I make myself feel certain ways? That reality may leave you uh, discouraged, just like my daughter when she was younger as a, as a toddler. She was in a bad mood, and uh, my wife said, you need to go to your room and find your happy heart. And she said, I can't. It is lost forever. <laughs> so that, that may be how you feel when God says, delight yourself in me, or don't feel envy, or don't feel anger. How, God, how am I supposed to feel certain ways? How do we make our hearts have certain emotions? But Psalm 37 commands us, don't fret, don't feel anger, don't feel envy. And then in contrast to that, we are commanded to delight ourselves in God. So this psalm will help us answer that question this morning. Think about the evil that is going on in the world around you today. I mean, big picture, what's going on in Sudan right now? Paramilitary, rapid, the rapid support forces are warring against the Sudanese army in battle over this conflict just for sheer power. And during that time, hundreds of civilians have died and 3,700 civilians have been uh, injured as a result of this sheer just war for power. Or consider the ongoing stories that I'm hearing from a friend of mine in Haiti, roving gangs that are going across the, the country, hurting the people, They've done wicked things, violence, and caused innocent people to have hunger and be pushed out of their homes, and there's great despair. My friend in Haiti has had to flee his home with his mother and his sister. They don't have any money. He's lost his job. There's days where they don't have food to eat. In two months, he's not going to have any money for rent. They don't know what they're going to do for a house because of the evil that is going on in that country. Missions organizations have been pushed out, like Jen Blevins, a missionary that we support. Consider what's going on in our own country as far as evil goes. Just in the past couple of weeks, the state of Oregon kept Christian families from being able to do foster care over evil gender ideology issues. And even in, in our state in Minnesota, we see evil laws that are being passed that endorse evil. Getting it down even more narrower. In my job in law enforcement, I've arrested people who have done evil things. They seem to have little or no consequences for their actions. I was hit by a drunk driver and was out of uh, work for four months. Had to spend a month in a dark room because of a concussion. And, and in some ways still feel some of the physical impacts from that crash. And the driver received 12 days in jail. That, to me, didn't feel very, very just. Maybe you personally have been cheated on a, a business deal or you lost money as a result of someone trying to take advantage of you. And I'm sure across this room, there could be so many personal stories of how someone has done evil to you and they didn't face the consequences of it. And so what are we to think and to feel and to do in light of these wicked acts? That's why Psalm 37 is in your Bible. The word wicked appears in this, in this psalm in 14 verses. The word righteous or righteousness appears in 10 verses. And the promise of inheriting the land shows up in verses 9, 11, 22, 29, and 34. So these are, these are the big things of Psalm 37. This psalm is an acrostic psalm, which means that every uh, two verses, there's a new, there's the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet that begins. And this happens throughout the Psalms as well, acrostic Psalms. So in keeping with the flow of this, of this acrostic pattern that David wrote, the song doesn't have clear lines or, or logical building. It kind of weaves in and out of these themes of righteousness and wickedness and 
inheriting the land. So as we work our way through the psalm this morning, and as I've spent time thinking about the psalm, there's three main points that I see from this song. So rather than working our way verse by verse through it, we're going to look at these three main points and then come to a final conclusion. So number one, point number one, the circumstances. So let's let's set the table for Psalm 37. Let's see what is David writing about. And we're going to ask, in order to get a good understanding of what's going on here, we're going to ask three questions as a way to understand the circumstances of what David is dealing with. That is number one, who are the wicked and what are they doing? Number two, who are the righteous and what are they doing? And number three, who is the Lord and what is he doing? So who are the wicked and what are they doing? First, look at verse 12, which says, The wicked are marked by plotting against the righteous. They gnash their teeth at the righteous. So the wicked are making plans to sin against the righteous. They gnash their teeth, which is like a a picture of a vicious animal getting ready to go on the attack. The wicked do not want the godly to succeed in what they are doing. Second, who are the wicked? They make plans that are so heinous that they seek to put the righteous to death. Verse 32. They hate the life of the godly so much that they want to stop them with violence. They want to draw their sword and bend their bows against the righteous. The wicked are on the attack against the godly, against those who are poor and oppressed, and those whose way is upright. Verse 14. As I was thinking of these verses, the, the clearest picture I could think of of this happening was back on uh, in 2015, February 12, 2015, ISIS released photos of 21 Egyptian Christians. They were construction workers who had been kidnapped. And shortly after the video was released, shortly after that video was released, they released another video showing all of these 21 Egyptian Christians wearing orange jumpsuits, kneeling by a waterfront in Libya. And moments before their beheading, Some of these Christians can be saying, oh, Lord Jesus, oh, Lord Jesus, which suggested that they were offered the promise of release, release should they recant from believing in Jesus, and they were confirming their belief in Christ. That day, 21 righteous Egyptian Christians had their lives crushed by the wicked who literally wielded swords against them. The wicked are not marked by only physical violence against the righteous, though. A third description of the wicked is that they borrow and they do not pay back. Verse 21, they, the, the wicked look for opportunities to take advantage of people for their own personal gain. And David says in verse 35 that he has seen the wicked spreading their evil like a green laurel tree, which means for a time, the wicked are successful in their and they flourish in their evil acts. The wicked and the evildoers are those who make plans to stop the righteous from trying to follow God and use things and they use people for their own goals and their own comfort. So that's who the wicked are and what what they're doing. Now let's look at the righteous. Who are the righteous and what are they doing? First, that we see that while the wicked person's heart has its, its own personal ambitions, the heart of the righteous is set on the law of God. Verse 31. For the righteous, for those who are righteous, God's commands are at the center of their thinking and their motivations. The righteous person is not making plans for selfish gain. Rather, their heart is set. That means their heart is dominated by following the path that God wants them to walk. 
And we're going to see this more specifically, what this means later on. But for now, the righteous set their minds on the word of God, on his instructions. Second, the upright in heart are described in verse 14 as poor. So a mark of a righteous person is poor, meaning they're oppressed and they're needy. The righteous are not strong in their own strength. They are not like the wicked walking around with swords and bows exerting their strength over other people. They're weak. They're dependent. Do you feel weak and needy and dependent? If so, that's a good place for you to be, for it lends itself to moving our hearts towards dependence on God and on his help. God's people are lowly, and they recognize their utter need for God's help. That is why they're setting their hearts on his instructions. God, I need you to show me your path, your law. God's help meets his people through God's word. That's worth writing down. God's help meets his people through God's word. What a comfort that truth is for me. For oftentimes I feel undone. I feel inadequate to do what God calls me to do. Yet the good news is that's where I ought to be. That is where God is for his people as they acknowledge their poverty and their neediness and humble help before him. Number three, in further contrast to the wicked, the righteous are marked by compassion and generosity. Verse 21. So while the wicked are using people and possessions for their own advantage, the righteous are looking for ways to meet the needs of people, to relieve suffering and to give others of give to others of their own resources. In the face of evil and wickedness, it's just all too easy to develop cynicism, to become hard-hearted, or to complain about evil and wickedness that is going on around us. And, and that is what the mark of the world does. That's what they do. But for the righteous, because of God's, because God's instructions are in his heart, because God's word is in his heart, they're, they're, for the righteous, their thinking and their motivation are being dominated by God's instructions. They move towards the needs of people and not away from them. They are always looking for ways to lend generously. And the fourth mark of the righteous is the things that the righteous say, the things that come out of their mouth, are wisdom and justice. Verse 30. The way that the righteous speak and how they see the circumstances going on around them is marked by the reality that man, God's in control. What they speak, what the righteous speak, flows from a heart being set on God's instructions from his word. If your heart is being dominated by the word of God, the overflow of your heart is going to be sentences that come out of your mouth to others that are full of God's wisdom and God's judgment. So, oh, how we need in this day in 2023 to have our hearts and our minds dominated by God's instructions and not dominated by news articles and headline stories. The righteous talk differently because they're shaped by God's word. And then lastly, under these circumstances of setting the table of Psalm 37, who the Lord is and what is he doing? So in the midst of all of this, of the righteous and the wicked and who they are and what they're doing, in the midst of all this, David reminds us of three things about the Lord. And when you see the Lord used in the, in the Psalms, it's all capitalized. That's the personal name for God, Jehovah, the existing one. Three things about the Lord and what he's doing. Number one, he knows. Take comfort in the fact that God sees all the acts of evil that are taking place and absolutely nothing is hidden from his knowledge. 
The Lord knows the days of the blameless, verse 18, and they are not put to shame in evil times. The Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows what you're going through. Now, that's number one. Number two, he laughs. God is as much threatened by the acts of the wicked, of those ISIS fighters that beheaded those 21 Christians. He's as much threatened by the acts of the wicked as you would be if I were to threaten you with paper cuts from a cotton ball. You're going to be like, what are you talking about? You're going to laugh in response to that. God laughs at any acts of the wicked. The Lord laughs at the wicked because he sees that their day is coming. He knows what's going to happen, verse 13. And this kind of laugh that God has, it is not a funny kind of laugh. It's a disgusting type of laugh. The Lord is disgusted with evildoers, and he laughs at their measly attempts to exert their own desires because he knows their day in court is coming. Their wicked deeds done against the righteous in the span of eternity are nothing but a stupid attempt to exert paper cuts with a cotton ball. That is what happened on that beach in Syria to those 21 Christians. Yes, there was real pain in their death. However, the pain that they experienced in their death in that moment in comparison to the glory and the joy that they experienced when their faith became their sight and they saw Jesus' face is nothing in comparison to the pain they experienced in that moment. God laughs in disgust at the evil acts of these men. And if they will never humble themselves in repentance before God Almighty, they will stand before his sovereign courtroom on their knees in utter trembling and terror. The Lord laughs. And then thirdly, the Lord knows. So the Lord laughs, the Lord knows, and I'm sorry, thirdly, the Lord loves. What does he love? Look at verse 28. He loves justice. God's judgments and his decisions and his plans will come about because he loves them. He loves the righteous and he is committed to them. His plans were not stopped when 21 Christians lost their lives that day in 2015. He did not forsake them when their heads were removed from their bodies. His plans will not be stopped in Haiti by roving gangs that kill and rape and steal. God is committed to punishing all acts of evil because he loves his justice and he will not forsake his saints. So we've seen that the wicked make plans to try to stop the righteous. And they're concerned with their own selfish ambitions. We've seen that the righteous set their hearts on the instructions of the Lord and humble dependence on God, and they have this ambition to help others. And then we've seen that the Lord knows all this, laughs in disgust at the wicked, and he loves justice. That's what's happening in Psalm 37. Now let's move on to commands. The psalm gives us specific commands. As the righteous, as those who are godly, those who have been vindicated by God, saved by God, the righteous, they're given commands. When, when they see wickedness and evildoers, what are the righteous supposed to do? But the commands aren't only limited to what they're supposed to do. We are commanded to feel certain emotions. The Psalms are there to stir within you proper God-exalting feelings that have their roots in powerful God-revealed truths for walking in the path of God-glorifying obedience. So first we're going to look in at the commands in the Psalm to feel. What are you supposed, what type of affections are you supposed to have? Well, the very first verse says that we're not to feel envy towards evildoers, nor are we to fret. 
We shouldn't be resentful. We shouldn't resentfully long to do what the wicked do. And conversely, we shouldn't burn in personal anger inside our heart that they're getting away with what they're doing. The word fret means to be hot or furious or to burn with vexation. We're being told to guard our hearts against feelings of hot anger when we see evildoers getting away with their wickedness. Do not fret over the one who prospers, carrying out evil devices. It's verse 7. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. Verse 8. Refrain from evil. Forsake wrath. Letting fury seethe and percolate in your heart, within your soul, will not produce delight in God. I can feel that kind of fretting bubble up in my soul when, in our job in law enforcement, as we put together hours and hours and hours of investigation into a case, and then we have all these multiple charges against somebody for crimes that they've committed, and then it gets boiled down to one charge, and they get little or no jail time as a result of it. I can feel vexation bubble up in my soul when I hear that um, that Jen Blevins is having to flee Haiti because of the evil of what they're doing there, and she's not able to stay and continue her work. I can feel vexation bubble up in my soul when I hear Christians who are willing to do foster care and give kids safe homes that need families, and they're prevented to do it, but they're prevented from doing so because they hold the biblical beliefs of gender and sexuality. This type of building, burning vexation within our hearts when we see evil going around can take hold of us. It can take hold of you, and it can take hold of me, and it can build the cynicism and hard-heartedness and envy. You will fall into evil yourself should you fret over evil. So much of the news reporting business is designed to stir within you a fretting over evil, so Turn off the TV and turn on your theology of Psalm 37 or or turn off the news and turn on the world and everything in it podcast. Don't feel envy. Feel, do not feel fret. We're going to come back to one last command a little bit later here on the command to feel because it's at the center of all these commands. And I want to end there. But for now, let's move on to the commands of what are the righteous to do specifically in the face of evil? First, rather than fretting, we're told to trust. Verse 3, trust him, trust in him, and he will act. Verse 5, we are to have confident expectation that God will act and that his judgments will come down on evildoers and that his plans will come to pass. We're to set our minds on this truth, that he will bring forth our righteousness as the light and our justice as the noonday. Criminals who fail to repent of their crimes and turn to Jesus, will one day find themselves before the eternal judge and give an account for their evil. Violent gang members will stand before the Lord, who is a warrior, and will find their own violence visited upon them. Politicians who enact godless and evil laws will stand before the lawmaker to give an account for what they did with their time as an earthly authority. Light will overcome darkness and shine as the sun. Promised light will come. So trust. Number two, we're commanded to do good. Verse two. So trust isn't passive. We're not sitting around waiting for the end to come. We're active in our obedience to God. We are to turn away from evil and we are to do good. Verse 27. Trusting that God will act with his judgments does not infer that we sit around passively until the world ends waiting for God to make everything right. No, we are... Our defensive position 
is that we know how the story ends. We have hope. We know that light will overcome darkness. But our offensive position is in these moments right now, let's do as much good as we can. Let's use what God has given us to do good. So I was thinking of examples of this within our church. and the, the, One of the clearest examples that came to my head is so many of you are involved in Together for Good. Just one awesome example of doing good. So many children and mothers have been helped through your good deeds. I've seen incredible acts of financial generosity from people at Grace towards funding adoptions and to sending out missionaries. The gospel has been shared. Burdens have been lifted. Meals have been delivered. Discipleship's been done. These are ways that we as a church are seeking to do good in the face of evil, shining light into darkness. Uh, Johanna and I started doing foster care uh, years and years ago as a response to seeing the evil situations that kids were in and that needed homes. And our response was, we just want to do good and provide gospel families situations for these kids to be able to come into. Number three, let's be faithful. By doing good, we are dwelling in the land and befriending faithfulness. That's verse 3. The word befriend here in verse 3 means to shepherd and lead to safe pasture for feeding. So what we're meant to do is to feed on faithfulness. Let's be firm and steady in our acts of goodness until the end of our days. Let's not, let's not fade away in our good deeds or be lulled into comfort and convenience as we get older pulling back or throttling down because of age. Let's be at it for God and doing good. Let's be found doing good as long as we can and in as many ways as we can, feeding our souls on faithful living for the Lord. Number four, commit your way to the Lord. Verse five, God's people are not marked by their own ways or their own feelings. They're marked by committing themselves to the Lord's plans. Therefore, we do good and we trust him. Number five, we still Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Verse 7. Verse 34 says, wait before the Lord and keep his ways. So we come before God. We be still before him in prayer. We be still before him by setting our hearts on the word of God. We be still before him by thinking over his promises. We be still before him in prayer and asking God to kill our feelings of anger and envy within our hearts and ask him to stir our hearts towards trust in his good timing. So we be still when we wait patient, we keep his ways. Number six, we mark the blameless, mark the blameless and behold the upright. Verse 37, we can look around, you can take a look around our church and see examples of what other people are doing as examples for you to follow and emulate. Look at the good acts of what others are doing. Mark the blameless and behold the upright. I'll give you some examples. I've been challenged personally by Stephen Hampshire and his zeal for evangelism. I've been amazed at all the work that Jerry Van Acker and that others have done and together for good and making that flourish here at Grace Church. I've been encouraged by Crystal Quigley's <clears throat> quiet, steady faithfulness in her Christian walk in the face of many hard circumstances. And the list could go on and on. Put examples in front of you of others in this community at Grace Church, of those who are doing good. So while the world churns and spins with evil around us, God promises a future reward for those who walk uprightly and gives 
them his peace in the presence. It gives him, gives us his peace as we do good. So those are six commands to do. That's a lot of doing. My question is, where does that motivation come from to do good and not fret in the face of evildoers? Because that is not a normal response or a normal inclination of our heart to press into good when we're faced with evil. How are we to do and feel all of this in the face of wickedness and evil? That answer comes from the core of all these commands. Look at verse 4 and verse 31. You can put two fingers on both those verses. This is the core and this is the overflow. This is where this starts to do and feel the things that Psalm 37 is telling us to do and feel. Uh, Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And verse 31, the law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The righteous are those who have the law of God in their hearts and are seeking to delight themselves in the Lord. Delighted of the heart in the Lord is the answer to how we do all these commands and how we feel the right way. At the core of the blameless and the upright is that they seek to have a heart that is deeply rooted in God. As you seek to make yourself happy in the Lord, he will give you the request that your heart longs for. You're going to want to do good, and God's going to be eager to answer that prayer and to help you. As you seek to make yourself happy in the Lord, he will give you the request that your heart longs for. And this happens when God's law, which is another word for instructions, his ways, is on your heart. A few years ago, I preached from Psalm 119, and I gave 14 benefits of memorizing and meditating on God's word as a a way to set your heart on the law of God and delight yourself in him. Do you want to delight in God and take joy in obeying his commands? Do you want to take joy in obeying his commands and not have them feel like a burden? Do you want your heart to feel delight and to kill anger and set your heart on his Set your heart on God's word through desperate, prayerful memorizing and meditating on it. Rise up early in the morning and put your heart on it. Put it in front of you all day long. Run to it. Pant for it. Diligently seek it. Search it for like treasure. Cling to it like a lifeline. See it as comfort. Read it for the goodness that you will find. Depend on it for the life that it gives. Encourage others with it for the hope that it offers. Stare at it. And you will see what you did not see before. That... There's my sermon from Psalm 119 in 30 seconds. Pour your heart out to God in worshipful praise and delight in God, and he will give it to you. Grace Church, God has brought eternal, massive truths from heaven into the world that we live in and put them on pages in Scripture for you to read and to know and to delight in. He gives us these promises as like this rocket fuel for delight in God, for our hearts to take delight in God. So let's... Let's finish up the sermon by what I want to do is fill up your tank with rocket fuel of promises just from Psalm 37 alone. And this is what could be what the next sermon could be. I'd love to spend 45 more minutes just diving into just the promises of one chapter in God's word, Psalm 37. So God may these promises that we're going to talk about now set our hearts in such a way that we're dominated in our thinking and our feeling and our doing by them. So to help us see a little bit more of the unsearchable riches that are found in his word, let's look at these, these promises. So this is the last point. Promises against the wicked and promises for the righteous. Promises against the wicked and promises for the righteous. First, let's look at the wicked. What 
are the promises God gives for those that are wicked. Look at verse 2. First, we're given the promise that evildoers will fade like grass and wither like the green herb. So to me, the picture of grass fading is really easy for me to understand because my grass starts out really green, and then right about now, it's not so green. It turns to brown really quick. But this picture of a green herb fading doesn't have that same mental picture for me because I just picture green herbs. They seem lush and ripe, and they don't seem brown. But as I was studying this in the Middle East, the same thing that happens to my grass happens to green herbs. So vegetation in the Middle East loses its beauty within a few days after hot, dry desert winds parch the land. The green herb fades faster than like green grass does. So we have this promise that the wicked acts of the evil, those that are doing evil, their acts and their souls will fade. They ultimately will not succeed in what they're doing. Second, the wicked's own sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken, verses 15 and 17. That is called poetic justice. This is emotionally satisfying for us to read. It, it ought to be. It, it is for me when I read this. That when, so when I'm reading a book to my kids or watching a movie where there's this villain, this evildoer, my kids instinctively cheer when the villain's own evil schemes come back on him and the good guy wins in the end. That's what's going on here with this promise. We have this promise that in this, in this ultimate battle against evil, God will thwart the plans of the evil so that their own wicked schemes will come back to bring judgment on them. Number three, we're given the promise that evildoers will be cut off from the Lord. Verses 9 and 10, 28 and 38. And my question is, what are they cut off from? They're cut off from God. They will be altogether destroyed forever, verse 29. So when the promise of them being cut off is given, this is referring to divine, ultimate, eternal judgment that God will render towards them for the evil that they have done. So the Lord, the Almighty One, laughs at the wicked in disgust. He sees that their day is coming. We don't right now. We see the evil that's going on. What we see in our days are evil seems to flourish. We see the days of the righteous being plotted against. We see the days of the flaunting of sin and the success of sin expand and become accepted. But the Lord sees the day, the day in which all sin will be accounted for by those who have done it and not repented of it. The day in which all wrongs will be made right, when everything sad will become untrue. The Lord knows It's a promise that ought to fill up your tank with delight in God in the face of evil. What are the promises for the righteous? Man, these are good. For the people who are godly, that is those that are vindicated by God, there are so many promises in just this one psalm for you to ponder. Just these promises alone. I've already said this. could be a whole other sermon, but it was in my manuscript, so I'll say it again. You are better off having little as a righteous person. This is the first promise, verse 16. You're better off having little as a righteous person than having abundance as a wicked person. The whole of this psalm should move us toward being just more abundant in our giving, abundant in our compassion, abundant in our good deeds, and more small in our lifestyle and our consumption. The wicked do the opposite. They seek abundance in lifestyle 
and nothing in the path of righteousness. So take an inventory of your life and ask yourself, if, if you were to have almost all of your possessions removed, would you still find light in the fact that you're considered righteous before God? Would you be willing to lose your job for doing what is godly, even if it means having a little? Would you be willing to have, would you be, would you be willing to have a small lifestyle for the sake of being a missionary to unreached people group? Here's why this is a great promise. Righteous people who are willing to have little and be content or already have little and are content are much better off. Why? Because they get much of God. They're dependent on him and he promises that he will uphold them. But the abundance of the wicked is a slippery slope to hell. But the little of the righteous shows that they have much delight in God. He gives them the desires of their heart because their heart is set on his word, not stuff. And on his word that they is where they meet God and know him much more fully and deeply. So my prayer is that we might be a people that want much of God more than we want much of the comforts and conveniences of this world. There's a ton of other promises I'm just going to hit on real quick because I want to focus on this last big thing in Psalm 31. There's promises in verse 6. He promises to bring forth their righteousness as the light and their justice of the noonday. Promise in verse 17 that while the wicked have their own swords and bows pierce them in divine judgment, poetic justice, God promises to uphold the righteous. Verse 33, the Lord promises not to abandon the righteous to the power of the wicked or let them be condemned when they are brought to trial. You're going to be brought to trial before God and the righteous are going to be found not guilty because of Christ. The Lord has given his salvation to the righteous. He's their stronghold in times of trouble. Verse 39 and verse 40, the Lord helps and delivers the righteous from the wicked and he saves them because they take refuge in them. Okay, so final promise here that I want to focus on. This is this promise of inheriting the land. And I'm focusing on this one because this is repeated throughout the Psalms. Verse 9 says that those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Verse 11 says the meek will inherit the land and delight in abundant peace. Verse 29 says the righteous will inherit the land. Verse 34 says that those who wait for the Lord and keep his way will be exalted to inherit the land. So whatever this inheritance of land is, we know that it will be received by the righteous who are marked by meekness, marked by keeping his way, and marked by patiently waiting on the Lord. So my question is, well, what, what is this land? Where is it now? What is it like? When will we receive it? Why is it land that God is giving the righteous? We know in one sense that God gave an inheritance to the land of to his people when he delivered them out of Egypt and and brought them into the promised land. But I think God is offering to the righteous something far greater that's being pointed to in Psalm 37, far greater than physical land here in, in this world, in this life. That type of promise would be far too small of a consolation prize if you were to think of it that way. Rather, I think David is writing with an, an eternal mindset here, a land that has location in eternity. And the reason I think that is because David is speaking in eternal ways. Verse 29 says that the righteous shall inherit the land, and where, how long will they dwell in it? Forever. Verses 18 and 27 and 28 and 29 are speaking in eternal ways, especially verse 27, which says that if you do good, you're going to dwell forever in a land 
forever. And verse 28 says that God's saints are preserved forever. And Jesus brought the promise of an inherited land from Psalm 37 into his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 when he said, Blessed are the meek, that's the poor, the humble, the lowly, the needy saint. Blessed are those people, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The reward of the meek, the reward for the meek or for the righteous is a great reward in the new heavens and the new earth. The reward will be a new earth where evil does not run rampant, where evil does not seem to go unpunished. And even more than that, the new heavens and the new earth will have no evil at all. It's not going to exist. There will be no victims of crime. There will be no roving gangs that terrorize the weak. There will be no one to take advantage of other people. There will be no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, no tears, and above all, we will be in the presence of Jesus. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Were your physical body right now, your physical body in this world, living under the curse of sin, were to look on or try to behold a resurrected body in the new heavens and the new earth, your eyeballs would melt under the brightness of its beauty. We cannot in this world begin to comprehend the sheer glory and beauty of what is waiting for the righteous in the new heavens and the new earth, in this inherited land that we will receive. And what of the wicked? Jesus promised that he will send his angels to gather all the wicked, all the evildoers, and send them into the fiery furnace of hell, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the final and eternal chapter for those who do evil, and never humble themselves in repentance before King Jesus. So in conclusion, the Lord does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. That is the promise. The promise to the man and the woman who put their trust in God. It's the greatest promise God could offer you, offer mankind. The righteous are kept by God for eternity. In the, in the economy of God, he takes what is seen as less valuable by the world, meekness, Weakness, compassion, generosity, he takes what's less valuable and he elevates it over what is temp- what temporarily looks like to be more valuable, abundance of possessions and selfish deeds. The brilliant, clarifying glory of Psalm 37 is that it helps us cut through the fog of this life and helps us see what is true. Psalm 37 is like this piercing shaft of light coming from a lighthouse perched high upon the cleft of a rock. And it cuts through the fog to show us the way, and to avoid the peril of the wicked. So in the face of all the wickedness that is happening in this world, whether it's, whether it's evil that you read about in Sudan or Haiti, or evil that you see happening in government, or evil that you have personally happened to you, are you seeking to have your heart made happy in God? And this is not a fake, superficial, fake smile, everything is all right type of happiness that Psalm 37 is talking about. This is a deep eternal, higher happiness that says, come what may in this life, my heart's delight is in the sovereign, powerful reign of Almighty God. Come what may. My hope is firm. My sights are fixed on a heavenly country whose designer and builder is God. That is where the righteous hope is found. The, The language and the description and the wording in Psalm 37, these are visual descriptions being used. Not, it's not They're being used not only to shape your mind to think right, 
but it's meant to shape your heart to feel rightly and made to shape your body to be obedient in doing good things. They're meant to stir your affections for righteousness and build this anticipation of God crushing the wicked and bringing his saints into eternal glory. So grace, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will give you himself. That is what you are made for. You're made to love God and to enjoy him forever. You are made for delighting your heart in God more than anything else in this life. Yet wickedness and evil is not only what is happening in Sudan and Haiti or at the Minnesota State Legislature. It's happening in your own heart. Do you hate the evil that is going on around you more than you hate the evil that is happening in your own heart? You do evil and I do evil. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve the punishment of the wicked. Yet Jesus, who endured the wicked and evil acts of men who killed him, who endured the cross for the punishment of our sin, had his sights fixed on the delight that was set before him. Jesus endured the cross for the glory of his Father to reconcile the righteous to himself and bring them into everlasting joy in the new heavens and the new earth. So Grace Church, may we be a people marked not by anger or resentment or bitterness towards those who do evil. May we be marked by the delight we have in God and the good that we do towards others. May, as we're trusting in the future promises of Psalm 37. Remember Abraham. God promised him a land that he never saw in this life. Hebrews 11 said he saw it and greeted it from afar, but he never received it. So also may our hearts delight in God, looking to a city whose designer and builder is God. David wrote Psalm 37 as a song. We are this morning a gathering, singing people who sees the perplexities of unchecked evil today and eagerly await for a promised future of tomorrow. So we're going to sing. I said in a previous song that I preached on, sing your guts out. It's biblical. Delight in God. Befriend faithfulness. Today we do good, soon we will inherit the land.